0: A Poem by Bonnie Parker, 1934. The Story of Bonnie and Clyde. You've read the story of Jesse James, of how he lived and died. If you're still in need of something to read, here's the story of Bonnie and Clyde. Now, Bonnie and Clyde are the Barrow Gang, I'm sure you all have read. How they rob and steal, and those who squeal are usually found dying or dead. There's lots of untruths to these write-ups. They're not so ruthless as that. Their nature is raw. They hate the law, the stool pigeons, spotters, and rats. They call them cold-blooded killers. They say they are heartless and mean. But I say this with pride that I once knew Clyde when he was honest and upright and clean. The laws fooled around and kept taking him down and locking him up in a cell till he said to me, I'll never be free so i'll meet a few of them in hell the road was so dimly lighted there were no highway signs to guide but they made up their minds if all roads were blind they wouldn't give up till they died the road gets dimmer and dimmer sometimes you can hardly see but it's fight man to man and do all you can for they know they can never be free from heartbreak some people have suffered from weariness some people have died But take it all in, our troubles are small, till we get like Bonnie and Clyde. If a policeman is killed in Dallas, and they have no clue or guide, if they can't find a fiend, they'll just wipe their slate clean and hand it on Bonnie and Clyde. There's two crimes committed in America, not accredited to the Barrow Mob. They had no hand in the Kidnap Demand nor the Kansas City Depot job. A newsboy once said to his buddy, I wish old Clyde would get jumped. In these awful hard times, we'd make a few dimes if five or six cops would get bumped. The police haven't got the report yet, but Clyde called me up today. He said, don't start any fights. We aren't working nights. We're joining the NRA. From Irving to West Dallas Viaduct is known as the Great Divide, where the women are kin and the men are men, and they won't stool on Bonnie and Clyde. If they try to act like citizens and rent them a nice little flat... About the third night, they're invited to fight by a subgun's rat rat-a-tat-tat. They don't think they're too tough or desperate. They know that the law always wins. They've been shot at before, but they do not ignore that death is the wages of sin. Someday they'll go down together, and they'll bury them side by side. To few it'll be grief, to the law a relief, but it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. There is nothing in this world greater than true love. We fight for it, ache for it, suffer for it, live for it, and die for it. Sometimes it is absolute euphoria, and sometimes it brings about our demise. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we we would be dead. Hey, Holly. Hey, fiends. We're taking another request this week. Ooh. I know, and we're doing it for a very good reason. Tell us. Yes, in honor of Leslie and John's upcoming wedding, <gasps> Ooh. this episode is about the ultimate story of love and crime. Mm, I love it. Right? Mm. Not that you're crime. But it's about love too. No, your ride or dies. <laughs> it's, that's, it's, have that in there. <laughs> we're talking about the apex of glamorous public enemy culture, the ride or dies to end all ride or dies, mm-hmm. Bonnie and Clyde. Now, I know we're all excited for a little old timey tomfoolery today. Yep. I have my vintage 1930s voice all ready for the occasion. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Barbara Daly Bakeland's coming back. <laughs> and while I really love some vintage fashion, I myself would prefer to never look as though I'm an antique. Oh. You know yeah. what I mean? hmm mm-hmm. And it's just me this week. Leslie is a bride. She is perfect and glowing, and there isn't a single line on her face. Thank you. I am the sad old hag that needs <laughs> your help. <laughs> How can you drag me out of this aged gutter, you might be asking? <laughs> That's simple. With the healing glow of validation. If you have just a couple seconds to spare, then please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a 5-star rating and or a friendly review. It really does help us more than we can describe. And if you won't do it for me this week, do it as a wedding gift to Leslie. Oh, you can even add the hashtag we would be wed so she knows it's a special tribute for her big day. I'm going to cry. <laughs> so give give Leslie a little wedding gift, leave us a review, leave her wedding hashtag. She will be so happy. And if you want more We Would Be Dead in Your Life, then you can head on over to Patreon, where for just a little monthly donation, you'll get access to extra monthly minisodes, our patrons-only monthly podcast, 30-minute horror movies. Ooh, ooh. You get discounts in our merch store, a special gift from us, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, and more. And if all of that is a little too much for you, we totally get it. You can simply share anything from our social media feed to your own. Tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell your barista. They could need something good to listen to while they mix up life-affirming beverages. Maybe to leave even earn you a free coffee. You don't know. Oh. I, you never know. Yeah. And if you tell your friends, then they can become fiends and we can all hang out together. Yes. Yay! Oh, and don't forget about our live show at Tyndall Road Brewery in Bordentown on June 19th. Ticket sales are opening up very soon. There's just a little debate as to how many people we're going to be allowed to have in at that point in time. I think, I think... Jersey will be back to full capacity at that point. Yeah. In time, mm-hmm. Which is twice the amount of tickets we could have sold when they weren't. Right. So we're just going to give it a minute to settle in and make sure that that's what's happening. Right. But Put it in your calendar. Save yes. the date. Ticket sales are opening up as soon as we get, like, confirmation on that. So, yeah. Going to remind you. Lastly, because we're going to be just a little bit busy this next week, but didn't want to leave you guys in the lurch, we will be releasing next week a previously patrons-only episode where we spoke with our friendly neighborhood mental health care professional, Andrew Jerima about some updates in the Slenderman stabbing case, specifically regarding the incarceration of Anissa Wire. Also, we talk about the fate of childhood offenders and how the system deals with them or doesn't. There's a lot of debate as to how to deal with children who have committed violent crimes. And while it's not something we ever really want to think about, it is an incredibly important topic, and it's not really black and white at all. This episode is fascinating, Uh, it's an exploration into a pretty squirmy subject, and we really loved it, and Andrew did a fantastic job, so we just wanted to give everyone the chance to hear it. After you listen, we can open a dialogue with Andrew in our Facebook group, as he has graciously offered to answer any questions you all might have, so look forward to that. Leslie? Holly? Do you have anything to add before we begin? Oh, gosh. Gosh so much so many
1: things so busy I mean I could talk about the wedding for the next hour if you want. <laughs> you talked about the wedding the previous hour that's true <laughs>
0: <laughs> I And mean, that was just for me
1: yeah <laughs> uh no that's it my hashtag is we would be wed though Perfect. so you know you guys can send me messages
0: Yes, and I will make sure to post pictures so you can see a little bit of Leslie's wedding day. I'm sure she'll Ooh. have beautiful professional ones, too. But I will, but day of. I was going to say, you're going to like my <laughs> candidates better. <laughs> <laughs> all right. If that's all we have, then on with the show. So first off— I love this story. Me too. Yeah, it's great. I wrote a research paper on Bonnie and Clyde in high school. I did too. Did you? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. See, my high school boyfriend and I dressed as them for Halloween one year. Sexy. Yeah, it was good times. I read just about everything out there on this case, including all the FBI papers. And I would be remiss if I didn't start this episode by telling you all that there is a lot of misinformation out there about it. Mm-hmm. Bonnie Clyde and the Barrow Gang were young and beautiful, to be sure, but they were not filthy rich by any means and didn't even execute many high-profile robberies. In fact, a vast majority of their robberies were carried out in gas stations and -and mom-and-pop convenience stores. So this image that they're like nonstop high-profile Dillinger-esque bank robbers is incorrect. (laughs) Right. (laughs) They were even known to rob gumball machines of their change in more desperate moments. All right. I know, and that's in, like, a bunch of sources. Also, Bonnie did not uh, smoke cigars. She posed with one cigar for a picture, and for the rest of her life, she was, like, portrayed as this cigar-smoking gun mall.
1: <laughs> that's like that scene in Sherlock Holmes.
0: With where the hat. Where he, like, puts <laughs> yeah. the hat on yeah. just to,
1: like, get away, and now that's all he wears. <laughs> yep.
0: Bonnie smoked cigarettes, though, so, you know— they were also a lot smaller than most photos would lead you to believe. Bonnie was just four foot 11 and Clyde was five seven.
1: Oh, adorable. There's yeah. little
0: munchkins. Little pocket criminals. <laughs> no wonder they were stealing gumball machines. They could just fit They're right tiny. in there. Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> and last but not least, while their love story is legendary, the pair were never married and they never had a child. While most historians will agree that Bonnie was unable to have children, there were a few persistent rumors that she did, in fact, have a daughter at one point, but She didn't belong to Clyde. There is no evidence that this child ever existed, but the internet loves to talk about her. Okay, so now that we got all the lies out of the way, let's get to the truth. Clyde Chestnut Barrow, we'll get back to that, don't worry, (laughs) was born on March 24th, 1909, and Bonnie Elizabeth Parker was born on October 1st, 1910. Both were born in rural Texas. So Leslie, why don't you kind of set up this era for us sure what was 1910 like was it a good time I bet it wasn't it was a great time (laughs) oh was it I'm excited tell me about it
1: cars were rare so in 1910's America there were roughly only 8,000 cars on the road and a little over 140 miles of country's rural roads were paved oh and the speed limit was just 12 miles an hour in most cities
0: 12 is a choice not 10 not 15 12 12.
1: 12. got it (laughs) Giving birth at home was the norm. So throughout the 1910s, nearly 95% of all births were done at home with the help of midwives or doctors for wealthier families. They started to change in 1914 with the introduction of the first maternity hospital. But even then, births at hospitals weren't normal. Illiteracy was at an all-time high. All right. <laughs> <laughs> During the 1910s, almost 20% of the population didn't know how to read or write, and only 6% ever graduated from high school. Interesting. Okay. The Boy Scouts were founded. Oh. Yep. Look at that. W.D. Boyce founded the Boy Scouts on February 8, 1910. Huh. Prohibition was ratified in America. Ooh. So the prohibition was a nationwide ban on alcohol. Prohibition was ratified on January 16th, 1919, and wasn't repealed until 1933. Moonshine and Speakeasy Bars, both illegal, were the only ways to get intoxicated during this time. Illegal, but so fun. So fun. <laughs> Scandal rocked the Chicago White Sox. Scandal. Eight players from the Chicago White Sox baseball team were banned f- uh, playing baseball professionally for life because they intentionally lost a game to let the Cincinnati Reds win the 1919 World Series.
0: But why? Why would they do that? I don't know. Well, maybe they were betting for, on Probably it. for
1: money. Yeah. <laughs> I would assume. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just We just really want them to win. <laughs> Those poor guys deserve a win. Yeah. <laughs> really nice guys. <laughs> there you go. Uh, America entered World War One. So World War One lasted from 1914 to 1918, and America joined the war to end all wars on April 6, 1917, when Congress formally declared war on Germany. Oh, it didn't end all wars though. It didn't. It oh, did not. No. They were sorely mistaken. Uh, the Titanic sank in the early hours of April 15, 1912. Ugh. Arizona joined the Union. Okay. Yeah. That's so they late. were the. <laughs> yeah, they were the last of like the joined states. Mm-hmm. And then Hawaii and Puerto Rico came, or not Puerto Rico? I'm sorry, Hawaii and Alaska came. Yeah, Puerto
0: Rico—that's our territory.
1: Yeah, but they're not like a s- official state, right? Not yet. I don't. I, I know we keep talking about them I becoming know. one, but I don't know—they're not part of the fifty.
0: Uh I don't. You know what? I honestly don't know the exact deal with that.
1: Yeah, I just remember we were trying to, and then I don't know if it actually is now.
0: Or Puerto Rico.
1: I'm not in school anymore, so Neither I way. don't know these things yeah. now.
0: <laughs> My children should tell me. <laughs>
1: The Great January Comet of 1910. Ooh. So this was worth noting because there was not one but two comets that appeared within the same year. One was Halley's Comet and the other was the Unexpected Daylight Comet like Comet. Yeah. Haley's Comet in particular sparked fears over ending the world. Oh, no. People began to panic buy masks and anti-comet pills during this time. I'm sorry, what's an
0: anti-comet pill? I know. I oh, don't know. No. You would have bought it. You'd been like, the aliens are going to take uh, me. Probably, I need to take this pill.
1: Probably. I would have bought all of it. I'd be like, fuck <laughs> the aliens. I would have had like soap made. Been like, just rub this on yourself. You could have made a fortune. <laughs> yeah. Mm. <laughs> the Oreo cookie hit the markets in 1912. Ooh. Right. We love an Oreo. Yep. Uh in Manhattan was even more crowded than it is today. Isn't that nuts? So in nineteen 19- That is super crazy. In nineteen ten, the census reported two million three hundred thirty-one thousand five hundred forty two people on the island of Manhattan. And today the sentence just for Manhattan is at one million six hundred thirty one thousand nine hundred and ninety. Wow. Isn't that crazy? That is really crazy. Yeah. So that, All of the United States lived in Manhattan. All of them. Everyone. Every single person
0: except Bonnie and Clyde. They were yeah, in Texas. They were in rural Texas. Yeah. So the political status of Puerto Rico is that it is an unincorporated territory of the United States. Mm-hmm. And as such, it is a sovereign, it is neither a sovereign nation nor a United States state. Right. So it's just like a territory. Yeah.
1: Okay, so it's still the same as it has
0: been. Yeah, I had to. I had, had yeah. to
1: confirm that. <laughs> I was like, I don't think that it is.
0: But. I don't either. But like, what if we were wrong? Oh my
1: God, I, I would feel really bad. Violet would be like, um, excuse me, <laughs> my mother
0: was so wrong about Puerto Rico. <laughs> I'm like, I'm so sorry. I tried. So anyway, we got it right. We're fine. So nobody could read. Everyone lived in Manhattan. Yes. No cars. Right. Booze. Oh, no, it's not a good time. No cars. Is- no booze. And war. Yeah.
1: And right when they were born, it was like a fear of no booze happening. Shit. It hadn't happened yet, but they were like, people are starting—moms are getting mad. Yeah, man. <laughs> the
0: church is angry. Everything's going badly. Yeah. All right. So now that we know the history, let's start with Bonnie. Bonnie was born in Rowena, Texas to her parents Emma Parker and Charles Robert Parker. Bonnie was the second of three children. She had an older brother named Hubert. Nice. Yeah. And a younger sister named Billy. Which I love that name for a girl. Know.
1: Isn't that cute? I just love boy names for girls.
0: Yeah, I think they're cute. Rowena, Texas, to give you an idea of what we're dealing with, or I guess where we're dealing with, remains an unincorporated area to this day, much like Puerto Rico. And this means it is outside of any municipality. Rowena currently has a population that hovers between five to 700, depending on who you ask. There's like no firm census statistics on it, because again, like, it's just very <laughs> off the grid, so... There are a lot of things out there that say there's over 700, and then there's people that comment on all of these things. They're like, no, it's more like five. You're wrong. So (laughs) great. (laughs) Again, it's hard to gather specifics on anywhere that remote. And you can imagine how that might translate to 1910. Right. If we can't do it now, like, what were they doing back then? Sadly, Charles Parker, Bonnie's dad, a bricklayer by trade, died when Bonnie was just a year old leaving her mother to support and care for the whole family. And so she packed up her children and moved back in with her parents in Cement City, Texas. Sounds bleak. (laughs) But this is a small industrial suburb of Dallas that cropped up to support area cement workers, hence the name. Ah. Yeah. Still bleak. (laughs) Um, There, Emma would work as a seamstress and care for her children as best as she could. Bonnie was ever the middle child and was known to love the spotlight. She was said to always be looking for some attention. Her mother also said that she, quote, fought her way through school, often getting into physical altercations with much bigger boys and winning. Ooh, get it, girl. I know. Put her in the UFC. Yes. <laughs> she was bright and talented. She loved art and poetry. They said that whenever there was, like, a little performance, she was always the star of it. She just was, like, really outgoing and fun. She was, like, a tiny little spitfire, and she wasn't afraid of anything. I like her. I know. So do I. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) I know. We're not supposed to, but I I like her a lot. Um, Bonnie attended Eagle Ford School in Concrete City, the main building of which still stands abandoned and terrifying in West Dallas today. Mm. So if you want to pay it a visit, it's there. And it still has the, the doors that say, like, boys on one side and girls on the other. Okay. It's cool. I'll post a picture of it in the photo suite. So patron trip? Yeah, I mean that would be the worst patron trip because it's in like this gross, <laughs> like depressed neighborhood, and it's a condemned building that someone bought to use as like a retail space and couldn't because they couldn't get any money. Oh no, yeah, it's not. It's not in a great spot, but it is a very cool building. So okay. we'll just be satisfied with pictures of it. All right, this one. We'll go on trips to all the other ones. <laughs> you don't, don't want to be here. In Bonnie's sophomore year of high school, she met and fell in love with a boy named Roy Thornton. <gasps> Plot twist. My, my. I know. On September 25th, 1926, just a few days shy of her 16th birthday, Bonnie and Roy decided to drop out of high school and get married. Makes sense. Now, a 10th grade education, as you told us, was probably nothing to sneeze at at this time and place. Mm -hmm. So while it seems kind of uncommon and reckless to us to walk out on high school in your sophomore year, it wasn't crazy uncommon back then in rural Texas. Maybe in a more urban area, maybe if you're one of the 8 million people living in Manhattan, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but not in Rowena. So Bonnie and Roy were married, and to commemorate the occasion, Bonnie had two interlocking hearts with the words Bonnie and Roy tattooed on the inside of her right thigh. Oh. Yeah. This was a pretty, like, tough move for a lady in the oh, mid-20s. For Sure. Roy, however, did not turn out to be the ideal husband. He was frequently in trouble with the law and would disappear for weeks at a time with no word. Hmm. I don't like that at all. This would leave Bonnie lonely and depressed. She would try to compensate for this by going to the movies with her girlfriends as often as possible, but soon the marriage dissolved. In January of 1929, Bonnie left her marriage, but the pair were never officially divorced. Okay. Technically, they were still married the whole time. Bonnie was left alone, claiming that she, quote, often got drunk trying to forget, drowning my sorrows in bottled hell. Oh, she's such a teen. She is. I read her diary from this time, like pages of her diary. They're so, they're, you're such. she's so, Yes, so 18 years old. Like, <laughs> I'm so lonely, but my heart will never forget Roy. And I'm just going to go out with my girlfriends. And I have oh, to confess, I did get drunk. Wait, we need to write a pilot
1: series for this for like the CW.
0: <laughs> Bonnie <laughs> in the City. Yeah. <laughs> just Bonnie Parker between men, just living her life with her girlfriends. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. It can be called like just Bonnie. <laughs> <laughs> there you go perfect. Well, Bonnie actually wore her wedding ring from Roy until the day she died, which seems to some people like she held on to Roy. But to be honest, I don't think that was it. This was a diamond ring. Mm. And if I had to guess, I would say that she just liked it and maybe transferred its properties to her relationship with Clyde when she was with him. Because there's absolutely no question in anyone's mind that she loved Clyde more than life itself. Right. So I don't think that that was a like, I'll never forget you, really. I think it was like, this is my diamond ring. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just to to read that, how I think it should be read. (laughs) Roy, for his part, did go on to get arrested for burglary more than once and was eventually killed during an attempt at a prison break on October 3rd of 1937 while serving a five-year sentence for burglary at Huntsville State Prison. Mm -hmm. Now, this is, of course, after Bonnie and Clyde eventually, eventually go on to die. And Roy was quoted as saying, after they died, they, like, asked him, like, well, what do you think? You know, Bonnie's your wife? Right. And he was like, I'm glad they went out that way because it's terrible to be caught. Hmm. You know, which I thought was kind of poetic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just a lot of understanding people
1: in Uh, your life. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Fortunately or unfortunately, when you look at it the way everything played out, Bonnie wouldn't be alone for long. Just a short year later, on January 5th, 1930, Bonnie was out of work and staying with a friend of hers. So again, Bonnie in the city. (laughs) Uh, This friend had broken her arm, and so Bonnie was living with her to kind of like help her while she healed. But Clyde Barrow was also friends with this woman and decided one day to drop by her house and see how she was doing with with her broken arm. He walked in the front door and saw Bonnie making hot chocolate in the kitchen. The two met eyes and instantly fell in love. See, this is a CW show. It is. (laughs) By this time, Clyde was already a wanted criminal, but Bonnie didn't care. (sighs) She loved him, and from the moment they met, they were in Separable. I love it. Just a kid from the wrong track or the wrong side of the track. There is no tracks. They're all on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get caught up on Clyde now before we move on. Clyde Chestnut Barrow. Yes, Chestnut. He later changed his middle name to Champion Ooh. in the boldest move since saying Danger is your middle name. Okay. Anyway, Clyde was born on March 24th, 1909, to parents Henry Basil Barrow and Kumi Teletha Walker. Yes, Kumi. <laughs> <Good> girl. <laughs> Clyde was the fifth of seven children for Henry and Kumi. The Barrows were poor farmers who were living in Ellis County, Texas, until resources began to run out for the people living off the grid out there. And in the early 1920s, the Barrows, along with many other families in the area, like enough for the history to call this a migration, mm. decided that they had to pack up their wagon and move to Dallas if they wanted to survive. Okay. And so they did. But this wasn't an easy move for the Barrows, as they didn't really have any money. The impression I got is that where they lived out in, like, the sticks was, was a pretty self-sufficient life. I don't know how much money they made or needed. They had to spend their first few months in Dallas living in the dirt underneath their wagon Mm. until they could scrape together enough money to buy a tent. Wow. So that's the level of poverty we're talking about here. It's very like Oregon Trail. Oh, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Because of the extreme poverty the family was living in, Clyde was introduced to a life of crime extremely early on in his life. His first arrest came at 17 years old when police brought him in for failing to return a rental car. Which is like the weirdest. You rented a car? <laughs> that's so weird. Yeah. Shortly after that, he was arrested again for stealing turkeys with his older bu- brother, Buck. From 1927 to 1929, Clyde tried his hand at a few honest jobs, but they never really stuck, probably because he was still stealing cars, robbing stores, and cracking safes, which I know that's a crime, but it's like the sexiest crime.
1: That
0: Yeah. I if like you're like, that. I can crack safes. Whew. That's fine, crack them all. <laughs> I'll be home <laughs> waiting for you. <laughs> and Clyde was a good-looking dude. I'm just saying, I understand. <laughs> anyway, this brings us up to the time when Clyde met and fell in love with Bonnie Parker. The pair were over the moon for one another, but this hotsy-totsy twosome soon parted when Clyde was arrested yet again and convicted of auto theft. Side note, I um, I looked up slang from the 30s to kind of pepper in this week, but as it turns out, I already talk like that. <laughs> So, none of the words were new. Oh, no. <laughs> it was like, you're racist. <laughs> so, I was like, no. You say these I things. I say them all. <laughs> <laughs> you guys, I'm a time traveler. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I just think you've done a lot of plays. <laughs>
1: a I, yeah, lot of theater plays from I, this era.
0: And <laughs> I, I can't even blame that because they haven't been in the 30s. I just like it. <laughs> <laughs> no. Clyde was sent to Easton Prison Farm. A god awful place in April of 1930. But it sounds so nice. Oh, I'm gonna tell you about Easton. Easton was built in 1896, sorry, on land cleared by slaves, originally worked on by sharecroppers. And the owners quickly realized that it was easier and less expensive to employ prisoners. To harvest their crops and stuff, mm-hmm. and before they knew it, their land was the very first maximum security prison in the state of Texas. Now, prisoners dreaded Eastham because of the horrible living conditions, forced backbreaking labor, and completely unchecked interprisoner abuse that went on pretty much all the time. In fact, in 1979, I know that's way too late. Uh, the prison lost a class action lawsuit filed by inmates for cruel and unusual punishment. Wow! Yeah. Clyde escaped Eastham, a feat which was notoriously very difficult, within his first few weeks of incarceration, and he did this because Bonnie smuggled him in a weapon during a visit. Oh, no. I love it. He was quickly captured, though, and locked up once again. See, this would just be such a great show. I would watch it, 100%. During Clyde's miserable time at Eastham, he also had a miserable roommate who sexually assaulted him on a regular basis. Oh. So this part of the story is one that it gets left out all the time. And it is his main impetus for everything he does. Okay. Like this changes Clyde.
1: See, this could be that that serious episode too. Like you sit down
0: his with your family and there's like a warning yeah. beforehand. Mm-hmm. Just to be
1: like, it's gonna get real intense.
0: Yeah. <laughs> this made Clyde more violent and and like full of rage and yeah, have like a I hair trigger, imagine. which which it does to a lot of people who mm-hmm. are raped. He fired back against his miserable roommate eventually, though, crushing his skull with a lead pipe. Yep, that would be the Mm -hmm. reaction. This is the first time Clyde had, had killed anyone. Now, while he could be angry and violent when the situation permitted it, he also hadn't lost his charm and had made a great many friends while in prison. A fellow inmate who was already serving a life sentence took responsibility for this murder. Oh, wow. Yeah. Clyde. Had no responsibility. So Mm -hmm. he wasn't penalized for it at all. They were like, You're gonna get out in a few years, and I'm here for life. I'm gonna take responsibility for this murder so that you can be free. Okay. Like this is intense. So and I can't believe it's a link in this story that people leave out, but it is. Yeah. Now, as I mentioned before, Eastham is known as the worst prison one could be sent to in Texas because of the extended hours of backbreaking manual labor. But Clyde always managed to find a workaround. (laughs) He had a fellow inmate chop off two of his toes. In late January of 1932, so that he wouldn't have to work in the fields. Oh, my God. Yes. But little did he know that he would be released just six days later. (laughs) Not because of his injury. Because his mother had successfully petitioned for his release. Oh my God! So he did it for no reason, basically. I'm sorry. We're I, copyright <laughs> trademark.
1: We're doing this TV show. Yeah. No one else can take it. <laughs> That's right.
0: <laughs> Clyde, after this, walked with a limp for the rest of his life because it was like his big toe. It was like the front of his foot he cut off. <sighs> you gotta take like a middle one. I know, take an unnecessary <laughs> one. Come on, Not it's bal- a little one on the yeah. end. <laughs> no,
1: you got to keep the middle one, okay. the little one. You, those are your so balancers. Like your, your
0: ring, ring toe. <laughs> Yeah. First, that one. Any, any of the three in the center. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Clyde was paroled on February— still thinking about that? Oh, oh, no. They're like the devil horns, too. Yeah. <laughs> Clyde was paroled on February 2nd, 1932, but something was different about him. His mm-hmm. sister Marie said, quote, something awful sure must have happened to him in prison because he wasn't the same person when he got out. Yeah. I know, makes sense to me. Fellow inmate Ralph Fultz also said that he watched Clyde, quote, change from a schoolboy to a rattlesnake. Oh. Sexual assault can do that to a person, especially at a time when that might make others question a man's masculinity. Mm-hmm. We didn't know then what we know now, and we especially didn't know it in rural Texas. So shortly after Clyde's release, his fellow inmate and friend, Ralph Fultz, who I just quoted a second ago, was also released, and the two, plus Bonnie, decided to work together. And the Barrow Gang was born. Mm. Bonnie was present for over 100 felonies, and her participation was not passive, as some people would like to believe. Like, she was in it. Right. Well, she's scrappy. She's very scrappy. I know. The newly formed Barrow Gang began a series of robberies, primarily, like I said, convenience stores and gas stations. But Clyde's goal— and he told Ralph this too in the beginning, his goal in all of this was to amass enough money and weapons to launch a raid against Easton Prison. Okay. So all of his crime spree, all he wanted to do was get enough guns and money to fuck up that prison that fucked him up. That was his motivation for his whole life. Can't skip over that. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, Clyde never stopped seeking revenge for what happened to him while he was in there. On April 19th, Your birthday is everywhere, dude. I know. Bonnie and Ralph Fultz were captured in a failed hardware store burglary in Kaufman, Texas. They had intended to steal a bunch of firearms. Bonnie only spent a couple months in jail after this before she was released when a grand jury failed to indict her. And this was probably because she was a woman, and back then we just didn't think women were capable of committing crimes or violence. Because we're so sweet and dainty. Uh, We couldn't possibly. Mm. She was probably just along for the ride. While she was in jail, Bonnie would sit in her cell and write poems to pass the time. (laughs) She's on that show. I know. (laughs) She's just the deep artistic type. I (laughs) know. Ralph, on the other hand, was convicted and served time, and as a result, he never ran with the Barrow gang again.
1: Oh. Sayonara,
0: Ralph. See you, Ralph. Mm Mm-hmm. On April 30th, while the rest of the gang was locked up, Clyde was the getaway driver in a robbery in Hillsboro, Texas, during which the store owner, a man named J.N. Butcher, was shot and killed. J.N.'s wife would later go on to identify Clyde from police photographs as one of the shooters. Now, Clyde was on the run at this point and wanted for murder. As soon as Bonnie was released, she and Clyde were reunited and went on the run together. Nice. Yeah. On August 5th, Clyde, a man named Raymond Hilton, and another man named Ross Dyer—sorry, Raymond Hamilton and Ross Dyer. And these guys are on and off part of the Barrow Gang. They show up here and there. They were out drinking moonshine outside a country dance in Stringtown, Oklahoma, when Sheriff C.G. Maxwell and Deputy Eugene Seymour approached them in the parking lot. Clyde and Raymond just immediately opened fire and and killed— the deputy and wounded the sheriff. Oh my God. They They're are like, wild. hey, guys, you can't drink. And he was like, the fuck, we can't. And it just shot them. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> deputy Moore was the first law officer that Clyde and his gang had killed, but they would go on to murder eight more. Right. Again, wow. Clyde has a vendetta against police. Yeah. So he, killing police is not only something that might be a necessary evil, it's something he probably likes. Right. It's
1: just hard because I can see where it's coming from from him. He Mm -hmm. clearly needed, like, a therapy session. Mm -hmm. But what makes it worse, though, is that Bonnie is just like, let's go, Clyde. Oh, yes. I don't know why. That's my accent for her now. She's Texas. (laughs) It's fine. Where that came from. I don't know. (laughs) Let's (laughs) go.
0: So next, the Barrow gang went on to pick up the infamous W.D. Jones, who is part of the gang until nearly the end now. And some people say that this is the guy that fathered Bonnie's mysterious baby, who does not, again, exist. I think they are rumors. But I'm not here to deny you any information. You can have it and then decide what to do with it on your own. W.D. would become a a jack-of-all-trades for the Barrow Gang, and he would do anything they asked. He was, like, in awe of them. He was just like, whatever you need, Clyde. (laughs) W.D. Jones had been a friend of the Barrows since Clyde's childhood. And he had decided to join the gang on Christmas Eve of 1932. And I should mention he was just 16 years old. Oh, he's just a little baby. Mm -hmm. So he looked up to them so much. (laughs) (laughs) And the three left Dallas that night. The next day, which if you were paying attention, you will know was Christmas Day. W.D. and Clyde murdered a man named Doyle Johnson, who was just a young family man while they were stealing his car in Temple, Texas. Now, again, you didn't need to kill that guy. No. He just fucking killed this guy. Okay. Clyde also killed Tarrant County Deputy Malcolm Davis on January 6, 1933, again, a lawman, when he, Bonnie, and W.D. wandered into a police trap set for another criminal. The gang had now murdered five people since April, and so they were really on a roll. And because of all the murders, they were also constantly on the move. They could never stay in one place for more than a night or two unless they risked being caught. So on March 22, 1933, Clyde's brother Buck whose real name was Marvin Ivan, so we will forgive the nickname. Hmm. It's a lot. It's a mouthful. Buck was granted a full pardon and release from prison, where he had been serving time for stealing those turkeys I mentioned a while back. Has he been in jail this whole time for turkeys? Yes. (laughs) 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 It turns out Buck took the rap for the whole thing to save Clyde. Wow. People do this for Clyde all the time. He must have been extremely charming. But Clyde ended up in jail anyway, like right after that, so I don't know what that did. Uh, so Buck and his wife, Blanche, after Buck got out of prison, yes, decided Blanche. to move. I know. Blanche is part of it, too. <laughs> um, and Buck and Blanche have their own story that I can't even tell because it would take up too much time. It's fine. We'll just put it in the TV show. <laughs> there you go. There's a whole, like, two-episode arc that's just Buck and Blanche. Yeah, well, because you have different characters, <laughs> yeah. so, you know. Yeah, you got to, like, go off on them for a little while. Yeah. <laughs> they have a great story, so it's fine. <laughs> so they move in with Bonnie and Clyde and W.D. Jones in a temporary hideout at 3347 Half Oak Ridge Drive in Joplin, Missouri. Now, according to family sources, at first, Buck and Blanche had only gone out there to visit Bonnie and Clyde. And while they were there, what they wanted to do was convince them to turn themselves in. But all of that went spectacularly wrong, and Buck and Blanche just ended up joining the gang. Perfect. (laughs) They were like, "Mm, we're going to do this too, never mind. (laughs) See, this this is going to be a hit. (laughs) I can't wait. (laughs) So once they have Buck and Blanche there too, they became this like loud party house. Okay. Yeah, where they ran loud, boozy card games late into the night. And this is like a quiet suburb. It's mm-hmm. normally a very quiet neighborhood. Blanche recalled that they, quote, bought a case of beer a day. So they weren't exactly laying low. And this was when it was all still illegal. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The men would come and go loudly at all hours of the night. And as you can imagine, they were not a hit with their neighbors. So one day, Clyde accidentally fired off a Browning automatic rifle while cleaning it. Oh, that You know, it happened. I guess. <laughs> Luckily, no one was injured, but one of their neighbors had finally had enough and reported the shot to the Joplin police. Ugh, just so uncool. <laughs> God, neighbor, <laughs> just live with all of our nonsense all the time. Yeah. <laughs> the police did not take this report lightly and assembled a five-man force in two cars on April 13th to confront what they thought were bootleggers. Living mm-hmm. in this apartment. Now, for those who are not familiar, bootleggers is a term for people that transported alcohol for resale during Prohibition. Right. So they thought, basically they were like, oh, these are just people who are illegally holding alcohol.
1: And there was there was a ton of them at this time. Oh, that's yeah. That's where you'll probably get into the public enemy stuff, but most of those mm-hmm. people are just, yeah. uh, are were bootleggers.
0: Yeah, they were like rum runners and bootleggers, mm-hmm. and that's that's what a lot of people did. Um, It was lucrative. Yeah. You make a ton of money. Mm-hmm. And we're on, the t- like, the tail end of Prohibition at this point, so right. probably, like, more than ever. Yeah. <laughs> That's not what they found, though. <laughs> the police, of course, uncovered their hideout, and the Barrow brothers and W.D. Jones, as they are wont to do, just immediately opened fire on them, killing Detective Harry L. McGinnis and fatally wounding Constable J.W. Harriman. Bonnie then opened fire with a Browning automatic rifle, which is where the image of Bonnie always holding a machine gun comes from. On A uh, Browning automatic rifle is not a machine gun, just... It's an automatic rifle, but people okay. always always show Bonnie holding a machine gun. Yeah, yeah. Again, not correct. As the others fled, they forced Highway Patrol Sergeant G.B. Kaler to duck behind a large oak tree. What happened then was 30 caliber bullets from the automatic rifle hit the tree and sprayed wood splinters into his face. Ooh. And in doing that, it gave Bonnie the chance to jump into the getaway car. Nice. This is all very exciting. This is wild. Um, then as they drive away— Blanche is walking her little dog down the street, and they just like lean out the car, grab her, pull her into the car with the dog, and then burn rubber out of town. What? <laughs> oh my god! Season finale. Uh, yeah, tires <laughs> screeching. Blanche and the dog. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Dog's name was Snowball. Just in case you wanted to know, it was yes. Yeah.
1: I worked at a plate. So just a little offshoot yes, here. I worked at a motel in Cape May mm-hmm. for a hot second. And they, it was a dog-friendly hotel, mm-hmm. and I apparently was told by the owner that um, I was, like, the front desk girl, so I had to make my voice sound older because I sounded like such a child on the phone. But then, <laughs> so I had to work on sounding older on the telephone, but then also I had to be more pleasant with the guests, and I'm not an unpleasant person. You're so person, pleasant. What is that? But she wanted me to, like, really involve myself with, like, their lives and their pets, so one of the phone calls while she was standing behind me was me being like, well, we can't wait to see you and Mr. Smith and oh, little no. Snowball. Like, they're <laughs> stupid little dog. Oh, my God. <laughs> Be like, we'll have a little treat for Snowball waiting for her. And I was like, what? The-
0: I need to, and I think <laughs> I, I quit, go. like,
1: the end of the day. I was like, I'm done. That's the end of that job. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, little Snowball. A little Snowball. So every time I hear that, I think of... <laughs>
0: Now you can picture Blanche's little dog, which she's, like, carrying while she's being pulled into a car. I know, I'm thinking of, like, a little Bichon. I know, I was thinking of Belle. Yeah. (laughs) So the group escaped the police at Joplin, but they had to leave nearly all of their earthly possessions behind, which included Buck's parole papers, a ton Mm. of weapons, Bonnie's book of poetry, and Mm. a camera with several rolls of undeveloped film. Man. Now, one thing I have left out of this story until now was that Bonnie, Clyde, and their cohorts loved to take pictures. Yeah, they were young kids. Yeah. Of course. They took they they loved, 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 love, loved pictures, especially Bonnie. She loved photography. They posed with all of their stolen weapons and their stolen cars, like big time gangsters, They'd you name like it. Instagrammers. I mean, they were always dressed to the nines. Clyde mm-hmm. always had on a tie and a hat, like it's so good. They were always in suits. Bonnie always had like a the dress with the like chevron in the front is yeah. all the pictures of Bonnie she, sure she had other clothes and the little like beret hat they always looked good. I can see her being like a vlogger. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, you name it. They were like a breath away from shooting their name into the wall of a bank vault. Yes. They like we oh, were amazing. Like. Yes. <laughs> So, the police, of course, developed the film they found at the Joplin Globe, a local Mm. newspaper, and found a ton of photos of Bonnie, Clyde, and WD just posing it up. They were like pointing stolen weapons at each other, leaning against stolen cars, having a grand old time. There was also among the developed photos the infamous picture of Bonnie smoking a cigar and holding a gun leaning against a car. Now, this was W.D.'s cigar that he handed to her to pose with. She has it like, in her mouth. She's chomping on a cigar. Yeah. The Globe knew full well that the public would eat this shit right up. They're like, oh, man, she is basically a cartoon. Right. They called her, like, a gun—like uh, a—what do they call her? Cigar-smoking gun mall. Yeah. And they were right. They are absolutely right. They, they were like, we're going to take all these pictures, and we're going to splash them all over the newspaper. And they did. And that is why Bonnie and Clyde became so famous. Okay. The Globe sent Bonnie's poem— and the photos over the newswire. And just like that, we have some criminal celebrities. Oh, she's probably so mad. She's like, that is my diary. She wasn't mad about that. <laughs> no. She was mad about the cigar. Oh, true. Okay. Yeah, so the f- the photo of her and the cigar became, like, insanely popular. Like, if it was released today, it would be a meme. It was just used for absolutely everything. And Bonnie and Clyde weren't just famous because they were criminals. They were famous because they were young and beautiful and having lots of unmarried sex. Ooh. And people were like, you know, they're fucking, oh my God. It's like a huge deal. <laughs> so these big deal criminal celebrities like Bonnie and Clyde, John Dillinger, and Pretty Boy Floyd saw in something that we refer to as the public enemy era. Mm-hmm. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that, Leslie? Sure, Holly. Thank you so much. <laughs>
1: Public enemy is a term which was first widely used in the United States in the 1930s to describe individuals whose activities were seen as criminal and extremely damaging to society. Mm. But first, this term was used as far back as the Roman era. The Senate declared Emperor Nero a hostis publicus in AD 68.
0: Can we call them that again? (laughs) You are a hostis publicus.
1: (laughs) And that um, directly translates to public enemy. But that was a lot more about, like, not, like, enemies against the government. It was more like enemies against, like, the general people. The people. Yeah. Uh, during the French Revolution in 1793, the
0: term ennemi du
1: peuple, oh. I think. Ennemi. <laughs> 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 that was great. <laughs> ennemi du peuple. Yeah. Was often used, mostly to describe those who spoke against what the revolutionary government was for. Mm-hmm. Then in 1930s, Frank J. Loesch, the chairman of Chicago Crime Commission, used the term public enemy to describe Al Capone, his brother, and several other Chicago mobsters. His use of the term was meant to be used as an alert. At this time, Al Capone and many others were under suspicion for organized crime, but there was no proof to convict them. Or if there was proof, which there definitely was, Frank Loesch was hoping to alert the public, shame the gangsters, and push the authorities to making arrests. Though some of these gangsters were murderers and thieves, some were just buying and selling booze during the Prohibition, like we said, the bootleggers. Mm -hmm. Soon after, still in the 1930s, J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI began using the term to describe wanted criminals and fugitives who were already charged with crimes. And among the criminals whom the FBI called public enemies were, as you said, John Dillinger, Babyface Nelson, Bonnie and Clyde, Pretty Boy Floyd, Machine Gun Kelly, Ma Barker, And Alvin
0: Karpis. Machine Gun Kelly, not the current musician. Right. I was just going to say. He's not a time traveler. (laughs) No. (laughs) But now you know where he got his name from. Yeah. I know things the kids know. (laughs) Yeah. I know stuff. (laughs) Yeah. I'm hip. Aces. (laughs) I'm aces. I just talk like a 1930s gangster, apparently. Didn't know. Didn't know. And I do.
1: The term public enemy was so widely used by the FBI that many journalists deemed the era the public enemy era. Mm
0: -hmm. Yep. That's that. Thank you. You're welcome. So after the incident in Joplin, the group traveled from Texas to as far north as Minnesota for the next three months. They just kind of traveled around. Again, if you're wanted, you can't stay anywhere for too long. And um, I'll explain it a little more later, but they did this because— if you go from state to state the officers from the state like can't chase you into the next state right. so they would just escape the law by bouncing. Mhm. In May they tried to rob the bank and I love this I thought it was a typo I was like you mean a bank? No no, the bank. There was just one <laughs> in Lucerne, Indiana, which did not go well and then successfully robbed the bank in Okabina, Minnesota. Hmm. So, I believe that's the only bank they robbed. And everyone's like, they were bank robbers. No, they weren't. (laughs) All right. The gang then kidnapped Dillard Darby. Great name. Yes. And Sophia Stone at Ruston, Louisiana, while stealing Darby's car. Now, this saw in, like, a little period of time between 1932 and 1934 in which the gang would kidnap their, like, a police officer or their robbery victim. Instead of killing them, what they would do is they would hold them hostage Like And, you know, if the police were telling them, they're like, we're going to kill them unless you go away. And they would do that long enough to escape the police, and then they would release the person. A lot of times they were, like, way far away from home, but they would give them money to help get back to their home. They'd be like, all right, here's the money. Get on a train or something. Go home. You've done your service. Okay. So, like, for a little while, they weren't killing people for no reason. At least some people. But stories of this made headlines. And that painted them briefly as like Robin Hood types. People were like, oh, they don't hurt anybody. They're like heroes. They weren't. I hate to say that because I do love the story, but they weren't. Uh, And that didn't last long as news of their more violent episodes also made its way to press. Again, they were not subtle. (laughs) It was said that the Barrow Gang would not hesitate to shoot anyone who got in their way, whether they be a police officer or an innocent civilian. Now, there aren't many accounts of the gang just, like, gunning down innocent civilians in the street, but I suppose they did kill a couple of shop owners and, like, car owners that did absolutely nothing. Right. So that's where that comes from. Eventually, the romance of their crimes faded when the public got wind of more and more cold-blooded murders they had committed. And these were not devil-may-care youngsters. They were hardened criminals who took the lives of many innocent people. Glossy photos were not enough to keep the public in love with outlaw-it couple Bonnie and Clyde. Also, their celebrity was not beneficial to them in the slightest, as they really wanted to avoid being discovered, and being all over the newspaper made it much more difficult to do that. They could no longer eat in restaurants or stay in motels. The Barrow Gang had taken to the countryside, where they would camp in the woods, cooking over a fire, and bathing in a stream. Well, that sounds lovely. It's rustic. (laughs) The stress of their constant vigilance and close quarters with one another it began to eat away at the group from the inside out. They were bickering all the time and stuff. Because, you know, we have Bonnie, Clyde, Buck, Blanche, and WD all in a car all the time. Right. So you're going to start fighting. And they did. On June 10th, Clyde was driving when he failed to see a warning sign at a bridge under construction near Wellington, Texas. And this caused him to flip their car into a ravine. Ooh. And then one of two things happened. Either Bonnie's leg was covered in gasoline, which caught on fire, or... Bonnie's leg was soaked in acid from the car battery. Mm. No one knows exactly. There are conflicting reports. It doesn't matter. The result would be the same. Bonnie sustained third-degree burns to her right leg. The burns were so severe that the muscles in her leg contracted and caused her leg to draw up. Oh. Yeah. W.D. Jones later said, quote, She'd been burned so bad none of us thought she was going to live. The hide on her right leg was gone from her hip down to her ankle. I could see the bone at places. Mm. This is a very serious injury. I know. After that, Bonnie could barely walk. She either hopped on her good leg, or Clyde carried her. Oh, and that's why there are pictures of the two of them with Clyde holding her on his hip because Uh. he had to carry her a lot because she couldn't walk. Wow. Yeah, people just thought they were like cute posing. Mm Mm-mm. Bonnie couldn't walk. After the accident, the gang got help from a nearby farm family. They were like out in the country, so they just pulled up to somebody. They were like, "Help us!" And after they, like, briefly got themselves back together, they kidnapped Collingsworth County, Texas, Sheriff George Corey and City Marshal Paul Hardy, leaving the two of them handcuffed and barbed-wired to a tree outside Eric, Oklahoma. The three of them then rendezvoused with Buck and Blair. So I guess they had split off. I guess when the accident occurred, it was just Clyde, W.D., and, and Bonnie. Okay. All right. I'm sorry. I didn't. I hadn't have that annotated early. So they then met up with Buck and Blanche, and they decided to hide in a tourist court near Fort Smith, Arkansas, where they were trying to nurse Bonnie's burns. Why did they kidnap those officers? I, I think they stole from them. They probably um, stole their guns or made oh, money. Okay. It doesn't really it doesn't really say. I just I just think he fucking hated cops. Yeah. Honestly, <laughs> to round up some pigs. I know. There you <laughs> go. Now, while in Arkansas, Buck and W.D. Jones botched a robbery and murdered Town Marshal Henry D. Humphrey in Alma, Arkansas. Mm. So the group had to go back on the run, even though they weren't sure at this point that Bonnie was even going to live. Remember, no medical attention. Right. In July of 1933, the gang checked into the Red Crown Tourist Court south of Platte City, Missouri. Now, this was a campground-style resort that consisted of two brick cabins joined by garages, and the gang rented the whole shebang. To the south of the red, Cro- to the south of this tourist court, was the Red Crown Tavern. Now this is a very popular restaurant among Missouri Highway Patrolmen, which the gang foolishly decides to visit. Like every night, they're there. Again, they have no, they don't care if people see them, but then they do. It's very weird. Blanche registered the party as three guests. But the owner of the tourist court, Neil Hauser, was no fool and saw five people getting out of the car. He noted that the driver backed into the garage, quote, gangster style for a quick getaway. Oh, what a folksy (laughs) thing to say. I know. I like him. (laughs) (laughs) Then, because she's fucking things up left and right, Blanche paid for their cabins with coins rather than dollar bills and did the same later that night when buying five dinners and five beers. You know, for the three people in their cabin, not right. five. Ugh. Blanche, get your life together. Damn it, Blanche. You gotta blend in. The next day, the owner of the resort noticed that his guests had taped newspapers over the windows of their cabin. Okay. Flick, you guys. And Blanche, again that night, paid for five meals with coins. Neil Hauser, the owner, told Captain William Baxter of the Highway Patrol, a patron of his— you know, the restaurant, about this unusual group. So I guess this guy, Neil, owned the restaurant and the resort. He just like, this whole thing was his. And he was like, listen, there's some weird shit going on. She says there's three people. There's five. She came in and bought five dinners. They're paying in only coins. I don't know what the hell's going on. I think something is up. I think they're those people that are all over the newspaper. (laughs) Clyde and W.D. went into town to purchase bandages, crackers, cheese, and atropine sulfate to treat Bonnie's burns. But I can't imagine why they bought atropine sulfate, because this is a substance that is used primarily for the victims of poisonings and or anyone with that has like a slow heart rate. Hmm. Atropine is a byproduct of the nightshade family, namely jimsonweed weed and belladonna, which is why, if you recall from our poison episode, it will also not surprise you that atropine drops are used to dilate the pupils. Okay. Because belladonna make sure pupils right. dilate. But basically, as far as my research tells me, it is never used to treat burns or large swaths of skinless flesh. So I'm very confused as to why they bought it, unless Bonnie suddenly had a very slow heart rate. Okay. Or
1: maybe they were just 23 and didn't know what the fuck they were doing.
0: That is my other (laughs) theory. (laughs) Because I'm like, why of all the medicine? You didn't buy like salve or bandages. You were like, we're going to buy this. (laughs) What is that going to do? Yeah. If if you guys know how atropine treats burns, or atropine sulfate, I'm sorry, like the salt form of it, back in 1930-something, the only please thing, tell me. The only thing I could think of is, because you said it's like a salt.
1: So, it's the salt form of it. So maybe they thought they were drawing out any bacteria, like so maybe it was infected. So they could have been rubbing it or— you know, if there was, like, a burn, sometimes you have to, like— I don't like, think <sighs> they had that kind of medical knowledge. I
0: think they just bought something. But maybe, like, from their parents, maybe Could it's be. something. What's it called again? Atropine sulfate. Now, there's only—most information is just on atropine. The sulfate is just, like, this is how it—this is just a form of it. And I did look it up because I get distracted, and that's why you guys get all this random information. <laughs> um, but anyway, I'm confused as to why they bought it. The druggist also thought this was weird— <laughs> and contacted Sheriff Holt Coffey, who put the cabins under surveillance. Now, Sheriff Coffey had been alerted by the Oklahoma, Texas, and Arkansas police to watch out for strangers looking for supplies like this. Clever, clever. Weird, but still clever. Mm. The sheriff contacted Captain Baxter, who called for reinforcements from Kansas City, including an armored car. Sheriff Coffey led a group of officers toward the cabins at 11 p.m., and they were armed with Thompson submachine guns. So holy shit, they meant business. Also, Thompson submachine guns, or Tommy guns, are exactly what your brain is picturing when you see a machine gun. Like the big round canister in the front, rat-a-tat-tat, that's, that's what, now you have the cartoon version of a machine gun. In the gunfight which ensued, the 45 caliber Thompson submachine guns proved to be no match for Clyde's 30 caliber automatic rifle bullets, which had been stolen, the, um, the assault rifles, on July 7th from the National Guard Armory in Enid, Oklahoma. So they robbed the National Guard. Wow. Yeah. A brief lessons on guns of the era. Browning assault rifles were prized by the United States Army so much that they were not allowed to be carried out of the United States during wartime for fear that the Germans would copy the technology. The Browning assault rifle was lighter and more maneuverable and caused a bigger hole than the Tommy gun. And so while the Thompson submachine gun might look impressively terrifying, it's not the winner in this fight. And I assume authorities would have known that as soon as they caught sight of what Clyde was packing. Mm. The gang escaped when a bullet short-circuited the horn on the armored car, and the police officers mistook this for a ceasefire signal. Oh. Yeah, so they were like, oh, gotta stop shooting, and then they all just drove away. <laughs> <laughs> They did not pursue the retreating Barrow vehicle. Can't, again, I can't tell you why. Maybe they were injured. The gang escaped again, but barely, and Buck had sustained a bullet wound that blasted a large hole in his forehead down to the skull and exposed his injured brain. So now Buck has a hole in his head where you can see his brain. Okay. That's not great. Not so good. Blanche was also blinded by shattering glass in both of her eyes. So they're not doing well. Now, I'll post a picture you'll see of Blanche's capture, and she's wearing smoked glasses. They look like sunglasses. That's why. Blanche couldn't see. I got you. It injuries to her eyes. Um, so to recap, at this point, only Clyde and W.D. are without grave injury. Hmm. The Barrow Game then camped at Dexfield Park in an abandoned amusement park. Oh. <laughs> so creepy. Yeah, this is near Dexter, Iowa, on July 24th. And yeah, this is terrifying. This episode of our show would have a haunting.
1: For sure. He's got to
0: add in some ghosts. Ooh, love it. So at this point, Buck is not doing well. He was sometimes semi-conscious. Mostly he wasn't. And he even could talk a little bit, and he ate a little from time to time. But his massive head wound and loss of blood were so severe that Clyde and W.D. had actually dug a grave for him. Wow. Local residents—so <laughs> dumb—noticed their bloody discarded bandages. <laughs> Around their campsite, and officers then determined that the campers were the Barrow gang. Local police officers and approximately 100 spectators surrounded them, and the Barrows soon became under fire. At a haunted amusement park? I'm going to add haunted. Yeah. (laughs) It was abandoned. So a shootout at an abandoned amusement park? Ugh. Wow. This is great. Bonnie, Clyde, and W.D. escaped on foot, which wouldn't have been easy because Bonnie can only use one leg. Uh Uh-huh. Buck was shot in the back, who already has, like, his brain hanging out, and Blanche was, and they were both captured by police officers, Buck and Blanche were. Buck died of his head wound and pneumonia after surgery five days later, which I'm surprised he even lived the five days, at King's Daughters Hospital in Perry, Iowa. But that is a nuts amount of activity for a guy with an exposed brain. So Mm -hmm. way to go, Buck. Keep going. (laughs) Keep going. For the next six weeks, Bonnie, Clyde, and W.D. traveled farther away from their usual haunts. They went west to Colorado, north to Minnesota, southeast to Mississippi. You would think they would lay low, right? No, no, no. no. (laughs) Yet they continued to commit armed robberies. Well, they had to get money somehow. They had some. They restocked their arsenal by robbing an armory at Platteville, Illinois, on August 20th, acquiring three automatic rifles, handguns, and a large quantity of ammunition. By early September, the gang risked a run to Dallas to see their families for the first time in four months, which feels incredibly stupid to me. But again, we have to remember, they were in their very early 20s. They were like kids still, and they hadn't seen their family in months. Yeah. W.D. Jones, at this point, parted company with them continuing on to Houston where his mother had moved, which feels smart. Also, he's a child. He was arrested there without incident on November 16th and returned to Dallas. And WD's confessions are where we get a lot of our information. Okay. Through the autumn, Clyde committed several robberies with some small-time local criminals that he found, while his family and Bonnie's family attended to her considerable medical needs. Because Bonnie's still in pretty bad shape. Mm-hmm. One does not recover real quick from having their entire leg burned down to the bone, especially without any medical attention. Mm -hmm. On November 22nd, the pair narrowly evaded arrest while attempting to meet up with their family yet again near Sowers, Texas. Dallas Sheriff, with the best name in the history of names, Smoot Schmid, (sighs) that's his name, Smoot Schmid, (laughs) along with Deputy Bob Alcorn and Deputy Ted Hinton, would lay in wait nearby... Uh, where they were going to, like, drive. And Clyde sensed that they were wandering into a trap as they approached in his family's car. And he was right. Schmidt and his deputies stood up when they drove by and opened fire with machine guns and automatic rifles as their family car drove by. So all the family's in one car. And as they drive by, these officers just opened fire on them. Now, the family members in the crossfire were not hit at all. But rifle bullets passed through the car and hit both Bonnie and Clyde in their legs. Oh. I know. They escaped later that night. And I have no idea how they're still standing at this point, but they are. Yeah. On November 28th, a Dallas grand jury delivered a murder indictment against Bonnie and Clyde for the murder of Tarrant County Deputy Malcolm Davis. Now, this is Bonnie's first warrant for murder. Because like I said before, they never wanted to think that Bonnie was involved, but Mm -hmm. people started seeing her doing it. Right. But they had one more trick up their sleeve. On January sixteenth, nineteen thirty-four, Clyde orchestrated the escape of five inmates in the Eastham breakout. So he got back to fucking Eastham prison. All right. Clyde had always wanted nothing more than enough resources to operate this raid on Eastham, and by God, he would achieve it before he died. This raid generated a ton of negative publicity for the Texas Department of Corrections, too, which, in the end, was Clyde's ultimate goal. Mm-hmm. He hated them for what happened to him in his youth, and they needed to pay. Also during the raid, Barrow Gang member Joe Palmer shot Major Joe Croson, and Croson died a few days later in the hospital. This attack attracted the full power of the Texas and federal government to the manhunt for Bonnie and Clyde, and it was clearly nearing the end for them at this point. As Major Croson lay dying in a hospital, Prison Chief Lee Simmons reportedly promised him that all the people involved in the Easton breakout would be hunted down and killed, Mm. not just captured. Killed. And all of them eventually were, except for one man, who preserved his life by setting up Bonnie and Clyde's eventual ambush. The Texas Department of Corrections contacted former Texas Ranger Captain Frank Hamer and persuaded him to hunt down the Barrow Gang. Now, Frank Hamer was notoriously tough, and he was came out of retirement to do this. He was the only man they could find to sign on that was willing to shoot a woman. <laughs> Real... <laughs> Came out of retirement for To it. shoot a woman. Real feather in your cap. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> at first I was like, all right, this guy, all right. Yeah. Oh, 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 all right. Because <laughs> there are a lot of reports that say, like, Frank Hamer was their choice from the beginning. They went right to him. But then if you really look at it, they asked a couple other people, and they were like, we're not going to fucking shoot a girl. Yeah. He was like, I will. <laughs> I will. Yeah, I ain't no pussy. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, starting on February 10th, Frank Hamer followed Bonnie and Clyde's every move. Now, he's tailing them like a private detective. He was living out of his car. And he would stay like, just a town behind them and, like, plot everything they did. Real crazy detective work for the time. And he documented absolutely everything. Clyde and his fucking snitch friend then killed highway <laughs> patrolman H.D. Murphy and Edward Bryant-Wheeler on April 1st, 1934. Eyewitness accounts said that Bonnie and Clyde fi- fired the fatal shots. And this story got widespread press coverage. And the outcry that resulted from these murders was enough to set the authorities into action. And Highway Patrol boss LG Fares offered a $1,000 reward for, quote, the dead bodies of the grapevine slayers. Not their capture, just the bodies. Hmm. Texas Governor, another great name, Ma Ferguson. Yes. <laughs> added another reward of $500 for each of the two killers. So now we're at $2,000 reward, which at the time is a ton of money. Great Depression. People Mm -hmm. need that money. Which meant that for the first time, there was a specific price on their heads, especially Bonnie's, since she was so widely believed to have shot H.D. Murphy. So this is the first time they're like, yeah, fucking kill that woman. Everybody. Right. Now this is significant. No one's trying to catch them. For a while, it was assumed that Bonnie being a woman was simply Clyde's companion, but now it is evident to the public that that's not the case. Public hostility really ramped up a few days later when Clyde and his snitch accomplice murdered 60-year-old Constable William Cal Campbell, a widower and father near Commerce, Oklahoma. Now it feels like they're just trying to get caught. They kidnapped Commerce Police Chief, Chief Percy Boyd, crossed the state line into Kansas, and let him go. Giving him a clean shirt and a few dollars. And Bonnie asked him that he'd tell the world that she did not smoke cigars. Aww. I know. Percy Boyd, of course, identified both Bonnie and Clyde to the authorities, so now they have these other murders on their list. And their days are numbered. Bonnie and Clyde were killed on May twenty-third, nineteen thirty-four, on a rural road in Bienville Parish, Louisiana. And maybe it's Bienville. I don't know. Frank <laughs> Hamer. Made it sounds so nice though, Bienville. <laughs> well spelled that's how it's spelled. Yeah. <laughs> Frank Hamer, someone's going to tell me. It probably is, because
1: that's like um French-speaking pro- yeah. area, probably.
0: There you go. Frank Hamer, the ex-Texas Ranger, the creep that's like following them around, who's going to shoot a woman, led the charge. He had studied the gang's movements and found out that they swung in a circle, skirting the edges of five Midwestern states, exploiting, as I mentioned before, the state line rule, which prevented officers from pursuing a fugitive into another jurisdiction. So if they went in a five-state circle... They managed to avoid police, and it was, like, wide enough that they wouldn't okay. get caught before they caught on. Because, like, you know, there's not, like, phones and stuff. Right. Clyde was foolishly consistent in his movements, though. So Frank Hamer was able to predict exactly where he would go. He always went to the same places. Did he have, like, the pin board? I'm sure he did. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what this is. It creates a circle. I know. Look at my red yawn. <laughs> <laughs> the gang schedule centered around family visits. Again, Dumb. And they were due to see their snitch (laughs) friend's family in Louisiana. Snitchy Snitch lived in Louisiana. So in case they were separated, Clyde has designated the snitch guy's parents' residence as a rendezvous point. And Snitchy Snitch became separated from the rest of the gang. Shock surprise. In Shreveport. So if he, you know, he was like, okay, I know that they're now going to come meet me at my parents' house. So he told the police, like, this is where they're going. What a douche. Yeah. Frank <laughs> Hamer's posse was composed of six men. Texas officers uh, Frank Hamer, Officer Hilton, Officer Alcorn, who we talked about before, a man named B.M. Manly Gult, <laughs> Manly. And Louisiana officers Henderson Jordan and Prentice Morrill Oakley. God, I love their names. What? Why aren't people named this anymore? <gasps> we don't try hard enough. I guess is He's the only, that's all I got. On May 21st, the four posse members from Texas were in Shreveport when they learned that Bonnie and Clyde were planning a visit to Bienville Parish that evening. The full posse set up an ambush along the Louisiana State Highway 154, south of Gibsland, towards sales. Officer Hinton recounted to their group that they were in place by 9 p.m. and waited through the entire next day. Like they're in bushes with tons of guns waiting for this car to come by so they can shower it in bullets. And they're there for like 24 hours, just like, Wow. Are you here yet? (laughs) They're going to come. We're going to shoot them. It's going to be great. So at approximately 9.15, over a day later, on May 23rd, the posse were still in the bushes and almost ready to give up when they hear the Ford V8 Clyde was driving approaching at top speed. In their final report, they say they had persuaded Ivy Methvin, that's the snitchy snitch friend, to position his truck along the shoulder of the road that morning. They hoped Clyde would stop to talk to him, putting his vehicle close to the posse's position in the bushes, and he did. When Clyde coasted into the trap that they had set, the lawmen all opened fire while the vehicle was still moving. Officer Oakley fired first, and Clyde was killed instantly by a shot to the head, so I want you to bear in mind that Clyde was killed with the first shot. Officer Hinton reported hearing Bonnie scream, the officers then went absolutely fucking berserk and fired about 130 rounds, emptying their weapons into the car and sending Bonnie and Clyde off in a real blaze of glory. Wow. Was any of this unnecessary? Absolutely not. Not at all. Their excuse after was was that they said, well, they have survived gunshots before, so we didn't want to risk it. Yeah, sound. 130 rounds? Mm -hmm. 130 rounds. And the first shot fired killed Clyde, and Bonnie only had one good leg. That's insane that they shot that many times. I know.
1: Please, According you just to gotta st- be sure.
0: I, that's what <laughs> they said. They're like, "Well, we had to. We had to know." <laughs> really? All right. According to statements made by officers Hinton and Alcorn, quote: "Each of us six shooters had a shotgun and an automatic rifle and pistols. We opened fire with the automatic rifles. They were emptied before the car even before the car got even with us. So before the car was approaching. Yeah. Then we used shotguns." There was smoke coming from the car, and it looked like it was on fire. After shooting the shotguns, then we emptied the pistols at the car, which had passed us and ran into a ditch about 50 yards on down the road. It almost turned over, but we kept shooting at the car, even after it stopped. We weren't taking any chances. They switched guns twice. They shot all the bullets in their machine gun. Right. Switched to another gun. Shot all the bullets in that gun. Switched to another gun. Shot all the bullets in that gun. Meanwhile, the car is on fire in a ditch. Actual film footage taken by one of the deputies immediately after the ambush show 112 bullet holes in the vehicle, of which around a quarter struck Bonnie and Clyde. The official coroner's report by parish coroner Dr. J.L. Wade listed 17 entrance wounds on Clyde's body and 26 on Bonnie's, including several headshots on each of them. Oh, they must have been a mess. Oh, they were. Undertaker C.F. Boots Bailey had difficulty embalming the bodies because they were so full of bullet holes. They were literally too leaky to hold embalming fluid. Yeah, I can imagine. A crowd soon gathered at the scene, like, immediately after the shooting, which, like, that's probably the loudest thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. How could that not attract a crowd? Officers Galt and Alcorn were left to guard the bodies, but they lost control of the crowd almost immediately. And everyone wanted a piece of Bonnie and Clyde as a souvenir. Ew. Why are people so weird? People are disgusting. One woman cut off a piece of Bonnie's bloody hair and pieces from her dress. Yeah, which she subsequently sold as souvenirs. Ew. Yep. Officer Hinton found a man trying to cut off Clyde's trigger finger and was sickened by what was occurring. Well, then, don't make a fucking scene. You don't want a fucking scene? Don't make a scene. Don't empty three guns per officer in an insane blaze if you don't want to draw attention to what's happening.
1: And media created their, like, fame, too, you know. Absolutely, they were made into celebrities. Yeah.
0: The coroner reported, quote, nearly everyone had begun collecting souvenirs, such as shell casings, slivers of glass from the shattered car windows, and bloody pieces of clothing from the garments of Bonnie and Clyde. One eager man had opened his pocket knife and was reaching into the car to cut off Clyde's left ear the posse towed the Ford with the dead bodies still inside to the Conger Furniture Store and Funeral Parlor in downtown Arcadia, Louisiana. No, like, medical examiner, no ambulance, no hearse. They just dragged the whole fucking car with their bodies in it down to the coroner. <sighs> so, oh, this is so sad. And the whole thing is like just trailing blood and bullets. Preliminary embalming was done by Coroner Bailey in a a small preparation room in the back of the furniture store. And this was common practice for furniture stores of the day because usually they shared their space with undertakers. I don't know why that was a thing, but they did. (laughs) Isn't that nuts? It was always like, furniture store and undertaker. We work together. What? I don't understand. Maybe because you sell coffins and they are also requiring a showroom? I have no idea. Oh, yeah, I guess maybe. But that but also the, the back room of a furniture store, there was a bunch of dead fucking bodies. I don't understand. I know, it's so weird. There was like already like a waiting room too. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh god. I don't
1: know.
0: I think that's weird. But anyway, Henry Barrow came in and identified his son's body How? and then sat weeping in a rocking chair in the furniture Ugh, section. So sad. So his dad just like walked into the showroom, sat in a rocking chair and cried. That. That's why it's in a furniture store. I guess. <laughs> There's a bed over there if you need to have a yeah. lie down. Bonnie and Clyde wanted to be buried together, but the Parker family wouldn't allow it. More than 20,000 people attended Bonnie Parker's funeral. And the largest floral arrangement was sent to the service by a group of Dallas City newsboys, which I knew you would love. Newsboys or newsies because the sudden end of Bonnie and Clyde sold 500 1000 newspapers in Dallas alone Ooh. which in the great depression their newsies yeah. probably saved their
1: family's lives. See this is going to be an amazing show. Tie in the newsies
0: in. We got it. Oh, this is great. <laughs> Bonnie was buried in the Fish Trap Cemetery although she was moved in 1945 to the New Crown Cemetery in Dallas. Now Clyde's private funeral was held at sunset on May 25th. He was buried in Western Heights Cemetery in Dallas next to his brother Marvin, which would be Buck. Mm -hmm. So they're buried under one, like, sunken-in headstone. It's not a headstone. It's, like, just flush with the ground. Right. One marker, and it's for both Buck and Clyde. I think it says, like, gone but not forgotten.
1: Mm.
0: You can still visit it. It's there. The car which is blood-soaked and absolutely bullet-ridden, was later exhibited at carnivals and fairs and then sold as a collector's item in 1988 to the P- Prim Valley Resort and Casino in Las Vegas, and they purchased it for about $250,000. Now, Clyde loved cars and even wrote a letter just before his death addressed to Henry Ford himself that said, quote, while I still have breath in my lungs, I will tell you what a dandy car you make. I have drove Fords exclusively when I could get away with one. For sustained speed and freedom from trouble, the Ford has got every other car skinned. And even if my business hasn't been strictly legal, it don't hurt anything to tell you what a fine car you got in the V8. Oh, man. Can we make a commercial? (laughs) I just love that, and I don't understand why Ford hasn't used it. (laughs) I know. I thought that was, I, I don't know. I was just taken by that. I love Are that. Are you a fugitive? Get a forward. <laughs> I like that he was like, I know that what I do isn't legal, but I have to tell you, your car is phenomenal. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so now the death car, as it is called, and the shirt that Clyde was wearing at the time of his death have been um, become property of the Casino of Whiskey Peets in Prim, Nevada, and they've been there since 2011. You can still visit them to this day. Great. That is our road trip. We go see the car and the shirt. We don't go see the school. Nee, nee, nee. Okay. (laughs) Bonnie's niece and last surviving relative is still currently campaigning to have her aunt's body moved so she can be buried next to Clyde. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they don't really deserve anything, but like... (laughs) You know, but yeah. But yeah. (laughs) And that is the story of Bonnie and Clyde. Man. It is action-packed. It is so (laughs) action-packed. They were just kids they were just kids remember when they died they were 23 and 24 years old that right. is not i mean my your brain will always process them as like full on adults and in movies they're they look like adults they act like adults yeah. but in reality these were people acting like teenagers right
1: and cuz i remember what i was like at that age yeah. and that was still that time where i was like i'm a bit older i have more confidence in myself but
0: i'm also real wild yeah well your brain <laughs> thinks it's invincible still it has, mm-hmm. still has that like little kid energy that invincibility mm-hmm. where you're like I can do anything and I will not die and this is
1: definitely that spark of your like the height of your narcissism at oh that age. god yes it's the most selfish yeah. age ever yeah and that's when you that's when you find your rider dies
0: <laughs> I mean yes you do and then you die yeah. after you ride <laughs> dear diary Clyde is just so handsome <laughs> oh he was very handsome you guys I will have a photo suite obviously of this and you can see them both and all the crazy pictures they took oh posing with stuff yeah so toast toast do you have anyone you want to toast uh, we, we do we, I mean like we're gonna want to say Bonnie and Clyde but we like shouldn't cause they're the bad guys in this story but it's really hard <sighs> I guess I want to the the poor
1: civilians that got caught up in it. <laughs> the officers that probably sh- that really had no that they shouldn't have died. The ones yeah. that he was just angry at the yeah cops just shot for no reason. Mm-hmm. The not the cellmate, but the friend of his that took that the took fall. the rap. Yeah,
0: <sighs> that's a complicated one because if he hadn't, none of this would have happened. Clyde True. would have been sentenced for that murder, and none of this stuff would have happened.: Yeah, but that but guy didn't know dude. that. He All probably right. did it for thinking being that. Yeah mm-hmm. And if we chose love, danger and glamour over safety and the law, we, we would be, be dead
1: Thank you for listening to the "We Would Be Dead" podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode, rate and review our show on iTunes, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod, and join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more.
0: I know that what I do isn't legal, but I have to tell you, your car is phenomenal. While I still have breath in my lungs, I will tell you what a dandy car you make. I have drove Fords exclusively when I could get away with one. For sustained speed and freedom from trouble, the Ford has got every other car skinned. And even if my business hasn't been strictly legal, it don't hurt anything to tell you what a fine car you got in the V8. Are you a fugitive? Get a Ford.